You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists. And for nearly the last nine years, we've been meeting here every week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben, we had UFC 258 this weekend. Kamaru Usman weathered some early adversity to retain his welterweight title with a third-round TKO of Gilbert Burns. And, of course, we'll talk plenty about that coming up on this week's show. But before we do, I wanted to start here. It was another week and another instance of... The UFC's continuing war on illegal pay-per-view streaming, or at least it's alleged war against illegal pay-per-view streaming. UFC President Dana White continued over the weekend to float without evidence, I will say, uh, this notion that the UFC is basically scaring the biggest illegal pay-per-view streamers into submission. And yet, if you look in the comments section, if you look in, in the message boards, it sure seems like the people who normally illegally stream UFC pay-per-views are still doing it. Nobody is out here reporting that they can't find a stream or that their normal streams uh, are no longer available. I'm going to read this quote from Dana White from Stephen Morocco's story over there on MMA Fighting. He says, Not a lot of them were streaming tonight. White said at the UFC 258 press conference, we're going to, we were going to go after another one of the big ones tonight and they did not stream tonight. So we'll keep doing what we're doing. Ben, what's really going on here? So what we are led to believe, uh, you tell me if you think I'm understanding this correctly, is that this, this war on illegal streaming Dana White got people outside your house. We're listening to your phone calls, monitoring your entire life. There's a vague we who is coming after you. Mm -hmm. You look out the window and there's a a van parked out there that says Universal Furnace Company. (laughs) And the result of this, he's, he's waiting to pounce is what he's telling us. And then... They're going to be crying and begging and he's going to enjoy it. That's what he's told us. And like that he will prosecute them. I assume he will go to law school and become a prosecutor just so he can personally prosecute them. There's all this stuff that's going to happen when the trap is sprung. But so far, both times he's told us about doing it, the trap itself is so terrifying or so he would have us believe that people are just opting out of the streaming game. Do we know whether any of this is happening at all? Well, because right now it sounds like it, like, I'm not saying this is happening, but it would be a, a not implausible scenario that Dana White goes to somebody on the UFC's team and is like, here, let's, I want to go after and capture and prosecute these streamers. And somebody's like, just say yes. Don't have him yell at you. Like, okay, yeah, sure, boss. We can do that. Like, okay, listen to his phone calls too. I want you watching his house. Okay, we're on it. 
Yeah, we're listening. We're watching his house. All right. We're, let's get him when he puts up the stream. Okay, we'll do it. And then it comes to you after fight night. And it's like, well, and you go, he must have got scared because he didn't put up the stream. And he's like, aha, got another one. And like, is, is anything actually happening? Or is this like somebody is Emperor New closing Dana White on this stuff and just telling him, yeah, don't worry about it, boss. We're, it's totally happening. Because so far, he keeps talking about it. The same scenario keeps happening, we're told. But there's there's no actual evidence of anything happening. Right. See, this We've is... We've seen nothing that proves a single thing is going on. This is an interesting uh, theory that you've just floated, that this is sort of a Truman Show-style <laughs> uh, prank on Dana White himself, that he believes... That this is happening, that they're scaring all of the illegal streamers right off the internet, and yet it's it's some kind of like a uh, like of a, a false flag inside the UFC. Not necessarily that Dana White himself is floating preposterous illegal pay per view streaming theories in order I mean, in order to too. like actually try to scare people off the web. Now I saw some people in the comments, maybe might even be on this. MMA fighting story by Stephen Morocco that I just read that quote from that basically people in the comments are saying Dana White is essentially telling the world they can watch the UFC for free every time he brings up this illegal streaming every time he's like well illegal streaming is a big problem lots of people out there are watching the UFC for free but we're going to put an end to it that maybe what the public hears is wait a second if I go online I can find one of these streams and watch this thing for free well the other thing is you're kind of telling people, hey, not a lot of people were doing the streaming thing for UFC 258. You're kind of saying maybe because they didn't care. Like maybe, like you might say they're they're not doing the streaming thing because they fear the wrath of Dana White and they fear that their house is the one being watched this time. The other possibility is that they just did not see the interest in that card. Yeah. That's another thing you're accidentally telling people. You're listening to the co-main event podcast proper. This show drops every Monday afternoon for free in your timelines and podcast libraries. But make no mistake, Ben Folks and I are here all week over at the co-main event podcast Patreon page. If you have some interest, go over there and check it out. Uh, Patreon.com slash co-main event. You can check out the Wednesday live chat, the Thursday movie club and the Friday Power Hour, all of it available for the beloved patrons of the CME at patreon.com slash co-main event. If you really want to support the team, I'd love it if you'd buy my newest novel, The Blaze, wherever books are sold. Publishers Weekly called it an exceptional thriller. So go out and grab a copy of The Blaze today. Remember, if you have read it and you do enjoy it, please leave me a five-star review over at Amazon, Goodreads, or wherever you like. Those reviews do help the book, so do me a favor. Buy, read, rate, and review The Blaze wherever is best for you. We got music again this week from our guy Kyle Kelly Yoner, an exceptional drummer and longtime co-main event podcast listener. This is from his solo project. It's an EP of instrumental tracks, mostly drums and synth. I think it's pretty cool. If you like what you hear from him on the show, you can check out the rest of the EP at his website, kyleky.com, or follow him at kylekydrums on instagram we got three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast in round number one gilbert burns almost got it done against kamara usman in the main event of ufc 258 but instead the night turned out to be a showcase for the champion 
To quote the great poet Kane Brown, sometimes it be like that. And in round number two, it's strange to think a person can be UFC welterweight champion and be criminally underrated. But both of those things now appear true about Usman. And in round number three, next week, we're set to find out if Derek Lewis can do that thing where he just takes a minute to rest, sucks in a deep breath, and then just stands up against Curtis Blades. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from the Corgi King, our old friend who writes, I think you two called this pretty much to a T when you discussed Gina Carano potentially getting fired from her job back in November. I guess I'm not surprised, and yet this seems like the dumbest way to lose an awesome job. So dumb that it's almost impressive. How long before we see Gina Carano back in the cage against Kayla Harrison? Now, Ben, you and I had a lengthy conversation about Gina Carano getting let go by Lucasfilm on Friday as part of the co-main event podcast Patreon Power Hour over there on the Patreon page. And at this point, that episode is up for free and available to the public. So if anybody wants to get a taste, just a little taste of what we're doing yeah. over on the Patreon page, you can go over to co-main event podcast. Oh, I'm sorry. Patreon.com slash co-main event and check out that episode for free. If you like what you hear, maybe you consider joining the team. But let's hit a couple of the bullet points here about Gina Carano uh, being let go from the Star Wars universe. And and I will just I'll I'll say what I have continued to say about this issue basically since the beginning. And that was that Gina Carano had somehow tumbled ass over tea kettle into a dream job here as part of the Star Wars universe portraying Cara Dune on the Mandalorian and as Disney Plus prepares to absolutely flood the market with Star Wars content over there on that streaming service, it seemed as though Gina Carano was on the verge of perhaps getting her own show on Disney Plus, which would have been an absolute life-changing opportunity both financially and just career-wise for Gina Carano. And the bar to entry in order to get that show, Ben, was just not crazy and out on the internet. And yet she couldn't help herself. She could not stop herself from posting these various right-wing conservative memes, some of them blatantly anti-Semitic. And and just last week we found out she had been written out of the Star Wars universe. She won't appear anymore on The Mandalorian. She won't be part of this show, Rangers of the New Republic, which we were led to believe perhaps had a starring role for Gina Carano. I'm going to go ahead and say this is maybe the most MMA thing I've ever witnessed. In, in Gina Carano screwing up perhaps the this sport's most successful retirement of all time because she could not stop herself from sharing what she believes to be the truth on the internet and ultimately lost this job. Yeah. And you're right. Like it, the bar was pretty low, man. It was, and it wasn't like you just had to trip over it once. You tripped over it and you got some warning signs that maybe you should stop doing this. And then instead of heeding those warnings, she went full victim complex and went, you know what? People getting mad at me for spreading this stuff on the internet is pretty much exactly like what the Jews went through during the Holocaust. That's It's an apples to apples comparison. And then they went, all right, that's it. <laughs> like Enough. As far as the question of if... This is how 
she ends up back in MMA. Yeah. Because she ruins her own acting career with stuff like this. I don't know. Because as we talked about on Friday, she's now going to have a different kind of career, it seems. Going to do something with Ben Shapiro's website and uh, film company or whatever, where she's going to create her own film. Living out a dream, she says, to create her own film. I'm going to go on record right now and say that there is no possible universe in which that film is good. I just, there's no way that that is going to be a good, by any standard, artistically, whatever. There's no way that's going to be a good movie. Yeah. That comes out of Ben Shapiro's whole production team. Have you read the the Twitter thread of a guy who reads Ben Shapiro's novel and then posts a bunch of screenshots and, like, descriptions from the novel? It is hilariously bad. Yeah. no, I And ha- just hilariously ideologically driven stuff that is ridiculous. Like, it shows you the alternate universe that that person is actually living in in his mind on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, I, I didn't. I didn't know Ben Shapiro had a novel until this very moment. And uh, now that you've told me about it, I'm going to pointedly avoid it for hopefully the rest of my life. But the point is like, okay, she's going to go over there. She's going to make a movie. She will probably get some support though, because right now we're living in like this moment where there's a weird sub ecosystem that has developed where if you get in trouble for being awful, on on the internet or in the real world and there are, and you face consequences and you know especially if you're like a a white person you, and you face consequences there'll be a whole lot of other people who are like oh you got in trouble for being awful well i am awful too so i support you yeah. even if i don't know anything about you even if i don't care about the art that you make or the the stuff that you do i support you just because these people who i hate are mad at you and if they're mad at you, that means you must be good. And it's like the, the, like the country singer who got in trouble for, uh, using racial epithets. And then there's a whole bunch of people who go and buy the album. Didn't care about his album before. As soon as they found out he was racist and was in trouble for being racist, they're like, I want to support that person. So there's like a, a, a not insignificant size of population of those people. And so those people, I'm sure she'll put out some movie through like Ben Shapiro's thing. It'll be complete dog poop they will support it though and like and there will be the path to her new career it's going to be a lot worse of a career and probably a lot less lucrative of a career than the one that she was going to have but hey now you can say all the stuff you want to on twitter and instagram share all the debunked conspiracy theories share all the like just dangerous anti-mask stuff you want and, uh, you know, they'll cheer you for it. So I guess if that's, if that's the, the job you wanted, that's the job you created for yourself. Well, you're right to say that a lot of people, Ben Shapiro included, have been very successful at monetizing that particular worldview and capitalizing on those conspiracy theories and other people's fears and basically like the weakest points of, of society's collective personality in order to make money for themselves. Although I'm going to go ahead and put movie, the term movie in quotes. If you're watching on the on the live stream right now, I'm doing it with my fingers uh, because I have a feeling that whatever Gina Carano and Ben Shapiro come up with that is released directly to the Internet straight through whatever his website is, 
barely beat meets the minimum requirements of being a movie. That's what that's my expectation. And all in all, probably rather still be part of Star Wars if you're Gina Carano, but yeah, maybe that's just me. Next question this week comes to us from Brandon Boyd, who writes, Stefan Struve announced his retirement again for reals this time. How far could the skyscraper have gone if he would have ever felt comfortable using his height and reach to his advantage? Is Struve the biggest what if ever? Discourse. I don't know that I could say Struve is the biggest what if ever, unless you mean that, you know, perfectly literally, since he is a seven foot tall, 265 pound man. <laughs> I see what you did. I see what you did there. Yeah. But he is like one of these weird puzzles, one of these weird cases of obvious physical potential in mixed martial arts, who had a lot of success, really, especially early on in his UFC career, way more wins than losses. He just happened to to like suffer uh, some weird physical ailments, like some panic attack stuff. Some other stuff seemed to to go wrong with his with his body, and he ends on a one and five skid in his last six fights. Most recently, the uh, first round KO loss to Tai Tuivasa at UFC 254 last October. Um, I interviewed Stefan Struve a couple times. I don't know if you ever have, but he's a super yeah. nice dude, very professional, mm-hmm. pretty good sense of humor. Uh, and just all around seemed like a, like a nice guy. It feels kind of good to me to see him walk away, especially, uh, you know, this statement that he released on the internet says that, uh, he has a, a kid now he has a son. Uh, he's going to focus on being a family man, 32 years old for Stefan Struve. I don't know. I feel like this, as long as there's something else, Stefan Struve can go do and be reasonably happy and successful in his life. I feel like this is a well-timed retirement for a guy who still has a lot of living in front of him. Yeah. And before we start talking about Stefan Struve as if, oh, if only he had done this, he would have been something. He beat fucking Stipe, man. Yeah. Stefan Struve beat Stipe Miocic. So you can't say that that guy went and had a bad career. I also think that it's really easy for us as normal sized people to look at him and be like, well, hey, if he just would... Do this one thing. If he would just fight like a really tall guy, he'd be unbeatable. But it's not that simple. I I think, I mean, I'm not saying there weren't times when he definitely did not make as much use as he could have out of that size and that reach. But it's also not a superpower. It's not like something that is insurmountable. You're still in there with another trained fighter and in the heavyweight division, another big dude who can hit hard, who is going to come up with some kind of solution or at least some kind of plan to try to deal with your height. So it's not as if, oh man, if I, if only we could be put in Stefan Struve's body, we'd be undefeated or something. Like, yeah. There's still a lot more like to it, but I, I, you know, I went once uh, to a restaurant with Stefan Struve and Anthony Hardunk when I was right. And Stefan Struve was very young at the time still, like kind of still pretty early on in his career. And Anthony Hardung, he had been training with Anthony Hardung and uh, I think maybe even living with him for a little while. And kind of I was talking to them about their coach-fighter relationship and everything. And you realize when you go somewhere with him, you walk into a restaurant and people are just like openly gawking yeah. at the seven-foot-tall giant who yeah. just walked in. And you realize, man, that's everywhere he goes. And, you know, he sit down at the table that is not made for a dude his size right. and, you know, like live in a world that's not made for size and everybody's looking at you and you just realize, like, okay, you might think like a lot of people sit back and be like, oh, man, if only I was seven foot, I'd be undefeated MMA world champion and everything. And it's like, mm, there are some things about it that seem like uh, 
not so great. Yeah. That seemed like a, an, an ongoing adjustment that you have to deal with everybody else's shit throughout your entire life. Yeah, I remember one time I interviewed him just about what a pain in the ass it was to travel for a UFC event to go oh, to yeah. go fight because he'd be coming over from the Netherlands. And, you know, the, like he would he would get like a coach seat. The UFC would, pay, would just pay for like a regular seat. And like even if it was first class, you're still seven damn feet tall. He's like, you got to be crammed in this in this uh, transcontinental flight and then you you know and you're also just in the airport where nothing is big enough for you you got to sit in those plastic chairs and then you get to the hotel where it's like you know you just have a normal room at the hotel nothing in there is big enough for you either not the bed not the 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 chairs like it's and he just sounded like a a physical ordeal itself just to make it to the fight so i do think that uh that you were right that that stefan struve like we look at him and we see all this potential but i think actually being the giant has some drawbacks uh but i think everybody wishes him well stefan struve yeah. uh, like a really well-liked guy from this sport and uh hopefully he does good things in his retirement man can you imagine you're sitting on a plane uh, you just got on you're getting your your headphones out and your seatbelt on and then stefan struve comes and he's going to be sitting next to you for a nine-hour flight across the ocean yeah He's like, just like bent all shit. the way over at the waist, even to be able to walk onto the plane. Yeah. Next question this week comes to us from Christoph Willibald Gluck, who I believe is an 18th century composer and operatic. Is that a word? Is that what do you call a person that composes operas? Uh, you know, you're asking the wrong podcast. <laughs> if that's if that's what you want to know, let's tell you yeah. that right now. It's good to hear from him, though. Yeah, he writes, Can we talk about this bullshit that is Cub Swanson and Dana White suggesting the only people who should report on MMA should have at least three fights? I know neither is stupid enough to believe sports journalism should be solely composed of ex-pro players, but what actual benefit is there for someone like uh, Sampson and White, whose career and promotion respectively benefit when more people and outlets are covering them? Not to mention the problematic state-run television-type relationship that comes from current athletes and former fighters with teammates looking to get on the payroll pretending to be journalists i get that experience could come in handy and maybe i'd feel differently if i was getting stupid questions from youtube influencers but i can't imagine how decreasing that how decreasing the pool of coverage helps anyone moreover an nfl or nba player gets 500 times the bad journalism a mid-card mid-card mma fighter does even and even they're savvy enough with their brands not to rant about the people who cover them and risk looking like an asshole. Uh, Samson normally isn't one to go all Mike Perry. What the actual fuck? Um, well, wow, that is a really nuanced, like an ear to the ground, really paying attention to what's going on in MMA take for a composer who died in Vienna like 250 years ago. Yeah, paying close attention from beyond the grave. Mm-hmm. I yeah. did. I did just see this tweet from from Cubby Sampson. Uh, yeah, and I don't. I don't know the background of it. I don't know exactly what he was sounding off on uh, in this particular instance. But this is an idea that gets floated more often than you might think. I guess from time to time that journalists that cover mixed martial arts should have some fighting experience or experience uh, training in mixed martial arts before that they start covering the sport. And I can never exactly figure out number one, what problem we're trying to solve with this solution, because like, I don't necessarily know. I don't necessarily know what is gained from this approach. I don't know what problem we're trying to solve. Are we trying to give the journalists like a more, nuanced understanding of the physical rigors of the sport? Are we trying to give them more 
you know, feelings of empathy and compassion toward the actual fighters, because I don't necessarily see those as problems of the current journalism landscape in MMA. I feel like the people who cover it already understand those things as, as well as uh, maybe we possibly could without actually being pro fighters. And I guess second, like, I don't, I don't necessarily know what you would gain from that experience, just because there are a lot of people who kind of come and go through the journalism world who have that experience. And for some of them, I feel like it helps and they make, and they're good journalists and other ones, not so much. Like, I don't necessarily see actual fighting experience to be all that linearly connected to how good a journalist you are or how good you are covering the sport. I think that they're, they're kind of like two different things, but I don't know. What, what, what do you think about this idea that, that gets floated pretty regularly? I would say that like people who cover this sport should also have some experience in it. Yeah. I mean, it's not uh, a take that is limited to MMA. You'll hear that for in other sports, other, other sports media property, like where people say, Oh, you know, how much can you write about football? If you've never played football before that kind of stuff. You're right. The the things require completely different skill sets to like do some martial arts training, take a fight. That kind of stuff requires one type of skill set. And it's not a skill set that is necessarily going to help you all that much to, to do the day-to-day job in MMA journalism. I get what he's saying. And I don't really – I wouldn't get too mad at Cub Swanson for that or anything because it's like – it's. The core idea that he's suggesting is these people should have some kind of personal experience and, uh, like training in this thing that they are talking about and writing about and things like that. That's not a terrible idea. I don't know if the actual, like, if having the fights would necessarily help you. I think you can get a lot of that if you, you know, go take some jujitsu classes, take some kickboxing classes, stuff like that. I mean, I got into MMA journalism through first getting into jujitsu as a like athletic pursuit and then getting into MMA and I'm already the only two things I liked were MMA and writing. And so it kind of made sense to combine those. And I also happened to be lucky enough to be doing that and coming up at a time when sports media outlets were looking around and going, okay, this seems like it's becoming a real sport. We need to cover it. Who can we get to cover it? And the MMA is a t- tricky one. You can't just take your golf guy and be like, hey, we're putting you on the MMA beat. You yeah. don't know anything about it. And the people are going to spot that really easily. And so it's like the, – and that story is not necessarily uncommon. I know a bunch of people in MMA media who have a varying degree of experience. I, I mean, I've known black belt – like jujitsu black belt legit people in the MMA media. And I've also known people who, you know, they've taken a couple classes here or there, but they're really good journalists and they're really good at what they do. And so I, I get what he's saying. I also think sometimes when I hear fighters getting mad about media and here I'm going to, it's my turn to do this thing with my fingers. Yeah. Uh, I wonder sometimes if they are failing to make a distinction between actual real media who cover this sport for a living and that is their job and just people talking shit to them on Twitter. Yeah. Because especially when you compare what MMA media says about fighters for the most part to what like NBA media says or NFL media says, it is nowhere near as bad or as vicious. I mean, in the NFL, they will get up there on 
like sports talk radio and spend two hours talking about how you should be fired and yeah. driven from the land right. with torches. Like they will talk all kinds of shit about how awful you are and what a waste of money you are and what a bust you are. And it can, especially depending on the media market you're in, it can be really, really brutal. And you don't really see that in MMA media. I mean, there's sometimes where people are doing these sort of analysis of, where they think this fighter can go, what's he's capable of, who's going to win this sort of matchup. And maybe when they're doing that kind of breakdown and offering their opinion, you feel like they're being unkind to you or ungenerous to you. But I don't see people kind of going out of their way in the actual MMA media to be dicks to these people. And I definitely don't see MMA media being like, this job is super easy. <laughs> like It doesn't take anything. These guys, like this guy is, is a wimp for not being able to take more punishment. Like I think... The people who follow this, and if you're around this world, you realize this is super hard. Yeah. This is a super hard sport. Not just the actual physical competition of it, the lifestyle. A lot of it seems super hard to do that level of intense training as much as they have to do just to get yourself ready for a fight. The financial realities of where, you know, your, your opponent can screw up his weight cut and get sick and go to the hospital. And then the next thing you know, you don't have a fight and you don't get paid. And I don't see media people being flippant about that very often. I see them like pushing for the fighters to be better taken care of in a lot of those regards. And I don't know if that's something where like they're just, they, they feel like they hear a bunch of shit from people and they look on it and some guy maybe he has a, a, a website that he writes on. Maybe he's just some guy on Twitter and maybe they're not making a distinction and being like, okay, you assholes think it's so easy. You get in there and do it. Yeah. And I, I could understand where that frustration would come from, but I don't know if I see that from a whole lot of the media. But hey, I mean, would it be a good idea for everybody to like know what it's like to get caught in a rear naked choke or to know, like to have some experience, like to know what some of this stuff feels like? Sure. But it's also, that doesn't mean you'll know what it's like to be Cub Swanson. It doesn't mean yeah. you'll know what it's like to fight for a living and have everything depending on that. It does maybe know, like once you do something a little bit, especially like, like me with jujitsu, I got, you know, pretty decent at jujitsu, got like purple belt level. And it's like, you know, you, you get guys in there uh, every once in a while, somebody who comes in and who has like real fight experience and they're a real MMA fighter. I've grappled with, I've grappled with like kind of mid-level MMA fighters and they're way better than I am. And you realize when you do something like that, that the gap between, you know, pretty good average guy and the professionals, it's not a little, it's a chasm. Yeah. That is one thing that you can realize from having that experience that they, that they are not just a little bit better than people, you know, average practitioners, hobbyists who are pretty good at it. They are just miles and miles better. But I don't know. How much does that translate to you being a better journalist? I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, I continue to think that it's kind of amusing that MMA journalists are basically the only people in this sport to have any kind of professional standard applied to them. Like every single other person in MMA just acts like a lunatic all the time, including the all, including many of the fighters and the guy who runs the sport. And everyone's just sort of like, oh, well, that's just how it is. But like a, a journalist wears a baseball cap to a press conference and everybody online will be, look at this motherfucker. Look at this guy. Show some respect wearing a ball cap to the press conference. I guess the only other thing I would point out is that MMA media is not a monolith. Yeah, your job is not the same as John Morgan's job. John Morgan's job is not the same as Ariel Helwani's job. Ariel Helwani's job is not the same as like an actual technical fight analyst, like you know Luke Thomas or or Jack Slack or anybody like that. Like 
And I feel like that's a point that gets missed a lot is that we're not out here all doing the same thing. And maybe if you are like a technical fight analyst who's breaking down one guy's uh, techniques against another person's techniques, maybe it does help to have some background or training or like actual fights under your belt. But like if you are a features writer and your job is to to let go hang around someone, understand their life, interview them, interview a bunch of people around them and then write about it. I don't necessarily know if it makes you any better at that job if you've actually been in the cage. Yeah. And I think that you also gain a lot of knowledge about what the life and training and and job of an MMA fighter is like, not from, you know, you go into a jujitsu gym with your buddies or you, even you training for an actual fight. I think you, where you learn that is doing the journalist job, being in those gyms, talking to them, talking to the people around them. Like that, I've learned way more about what an MMA fighter's life is actually like and what the demands on them and what makes a good MMA fighter from just somebody who is a good athlete. I, like I've learned it by being in those gyms and talking to those people and asking coaches about it and stuff like that way more than I ever learned from like my own recreational jujitsu pursuits. Yeah. All right. One more here. We'll do this question from, uh, Rob, who writes, not much of a question, but that camera the UFC have in the cage for the intros and the aftermath is pretty cool. Discourse. Uh, I agree. And generally, I am in favor of the UFC doing anything different at any point during the broadcast. So to see this, what kind of camera is this? People are calling it the 8K camera, but it has some kind of much more specific technical name that I saw floated online that I don't immediately have at my disposal. Yeah, I'm looking at now. I saw people talking about what it is, and I was like, "Well, that's a series of like words and numbers and stuff." I don't, I don't have any idea what it means, but I, I do kind of like it too. Yeah, it looks cool. And like, anytime you can bring a new wrinkle to this broadcast that many of us have been watching for, you know, fifteen, twenty years, and and make things look different and make things look cool, I, I generally think it's it's pretty good. I also think it's funny to say that it looks like an iPhone on portrait mode. Uh, but it's yeah, an A seven. RIV, or that could be A7R4, who knows, with a 35 millimeter 1.4G master lens. So, I mean, obviously, obviously that's what it is. Yeah. I, you know? I, I love it. It looks cool, especially like after Kamara Usman wins his fight and he's walking around yeah. in the cage saying, take what from who and whatnot. Yeah. Like, give it's me like that. A, give me more of that. Like an artsy film tracking shot following Kamara Usman around as he celebrates. And yeah, and like you, I also feel like, yes, let's try some things. Let's try some different things. Even if I know some people are just going to always going to get mad as if anything changes and anything is different and they, they, they hate and fear change. But it, it does seem like one of the problems the UFC struggles with at times is just settling into this rinse repeat model of putting on events and thinking we know exactly how to do it. We don't have to change anything. We'll just roll it out exactly the same way every time. Trying some new fun stuff like that. You know, maybe it won't all work, but. Some of it will, and, you know, maybe you you creatively come up with something. That's going to do it for Listener Mail this week. If you have a question, comment, or concern that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. Go to the website, comainevent.com. Click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one.
then early on, it looked like Gilbert Burns might win this battle between two friends and former training partners in the main event of UFC 258, the welterweight title fight between the defending champion Kamaru Usman and Gilbert Burns. Burns went out there in the first round and dropped him with what I believe was an overhand right had Kamara Usman in some manner of trouble throughout that first round, clearly won the first round. Uh, and then I think in, in really uh, impressive and telling fashion, Kamara Usman managed to sort of rally the troops, come back out in the second and, and then very quickly into the third, reestablish his dominance and ends up winning 34 seconds into the third round via TKO here uh, to cement a successful defense of his welterweight title. Let's talk for a second here about Gilbert Burns, who obviously reacted in very emotional fashion when this thing was over. He had waited a long time for this title fight and uh, sure seemed to have it in hand for the first five minutes. And then things kind of fell apart. I know after the event, uh, he expressed some mis misgivings about how he handled that situation in the cage when he had Kamaru Usman hurt, then maybe he went a little bit too crazy uh, trying to finish the fight. What, what was your take here on what happened and, and how Gilbert Burns might have let this one slip through his fingers a little bit? Yeah, I, I could see how you get fired up after you see the guy hurt because Usman was definitely woozy from yeah. that. It wasn't just like one flash shot. You could see him for, for a couple of minutes after that looking a little shaky. And so I could see how you think like, okay, I got him now. I got to jump on him and not let this opportunity slip away. But at the same time, you know, just not even physically, but emotionally, you can get that adrenaline dump really early in a fight, I think, from having that that big spike of like hope, basically, and like surging through you thinking like, okay, now, now is the time to finish him. And yet also, like, I think it's a mistake to just think of it as, Here's how Gilbert Burns screwed up a good opportunity and not here's how Kamara Usman really handled that super well. Yeah. Like he he did a really good job with it. Like he he took that shot. He was definitely hurt, but he recovered pretty quickly and he stayed really calm. You didn't see him freak out. You didn't see any signs of like, you know, desperation from Kamara Usman there. He really handled that with and showed like a, that he has that in his game too. That he has that, that sort of like maturity and experience and calm to not just freak out when things start going badly for you early on in the fight. Yeah. And he showed off a heck of a chin as well in this fight. He got yeah. tagged with that right hand. He got tagged with a knee. Uh, he got hit with some pretty hard shots here from Gilbert Burns and, and didn't really ever get rattled. Didn't really ever panic, uh, kind of went to the corner between the first and the second round and, and came out of it. Uh, I don't know if you want to say refocused or re-energized, but clearly still able to to take over this fight, have it in hand, and then win early in the third. Uh, Kamar Usman obviously famously kind of decamped from Florida, went up to Colorado to train with Trevor Whitman, came out in this fight uh, with some new wrinkles, I guess, in his game through more leg kicks than we've seen from him in the past. Uh, he's clearly working that jab now to... On uh, both sides. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Changing stances and, and working that jab in a way that you don't see a ton of fighters in MMA work the jab. That's kind of like stinging power jab that that with those MMA gloves on can be in and of itself a fight ending weapon, as I think you saw in this fight. Uh, and you actually heard Trevor Whitman between rounds tell him you're the champ because of your jab. Yeah. Always nice to look like a genius. Uh, yeah. Work in the yeah, corner. Because it's like he, he tells him that and then Usman goes right out there and really establishes that jab. And it ends up being one of the main difference makers in the fight. Yeah. He goes out there. Uh, 
I've seen people compare it to the George St. Pierre fight against Josh Koscheck, where St. Pierre was really using his jab. And it does give Kamara Usman yet another weapon that makes him a very difficult puzzle to figure out at this point. You've got a guy who's a, a, a great power striker and a guy with really high level wrestling in his pedigree and a guy who can fight from the clinch. And at this point, you know, I know he's only what this is his third title defense. So I think in many ways uh, we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit with some of the more historic comparisons. Yeah. But he has won. What is it? 17 fights in a row, something like that. 16 fights in a row here undefeated in the UFC since his debut back in 2015. Uh, and is just a guy who is, as in his own words, I guess, a problem. I don't know a better a better way to describe him than how he has said it in the past, but like a guy with a very, very complete mixed martial arts game and a guy that we've seen fight now in his last three fights alone, a really, really high-level wrestler in Colby Covington, a guy who is, is predominantly a striker in Jorge Masvidal, even on short notice, I guess, at UFC 251 in Abu Dhabi back in July of 2020, and now like a... a, a talented striker and very decorated Brazilian jiu-jitsu guy in Gilbert Burns. So, uh, and a guy who frankly knew Kamaru Usman quite well coming into this fight. So like an impressive run of just those three fights for Kamaru Usman, just in terms of the diversity of opposition that he has faced at this point. And you, you look around and I don't know what the key to beating him is, uh, coming out of this fight. Although I guess we did see, he can be a little bit vulnerable on the feet. Yeah. But also, do you think maybe there were moments where Gilbert was getting just jackhammered in the face by that jab and thinking to himself, I don't remember him having this good of a jab when we sparred together. <laughs> yeah. I don't remember. Yeah. I mean, Kamaru Usman talked about how the fight went very similarly to how their sparring sessions would go, which is that Gilbert's throwing everything hard and he'll struggle with it a little bit at first, but then find his footing and, and take over after that. And it's interesting that, you know, both guys have, I'm sure, grown and feel like they changed and improved since the times when they trained together, but then also they come back out there and your your fight for a world title looks a lot like your sparring sessions in the gym. But, I mean, it's that's a problem for people. If, if Kamaru Usman is going to be out here working a jab from both sides, so switching stances with that jab and hurting people with it, and you also have to worry about his takedowns and him as a wrestler, that's really tough is really tough to know which one to be paying attention to at the time. Like it reminds me when Dominic Cruz was really dominant, like in the, as a WEC champ um, and, you know, into like the early times in the, the UFC kind of the same thing. The thing that he did really well, I remember watching him against uh, Scott Jorgensen in that last WEC event. And he would throw like a, like a right hand lead, but he would also, work out of that same stance and that same approach to go for a, a knee tap takedown. And when he is coming at you with it, it looks almost identical. You can't tell which time is going to be him just punching you in the face with his right hand and which time is going to be him reason for that knee tap takedown. It's like a, a pitcher who can throw a fastball and a curveball and a, and a, you know, a splitter and everything, but it all looks exactly the same to the batter in his delivery. You yeah. can't key on anything physically that he is doing to tell you what's about to come. And if you can, like, Kamaru's can compare that jab and also, like, make people worry about the takedowns, that's going to be tough. You look at, especially at 
what we know of the people right now in the welterweight division and what they bring to the table, it's tough to see who in there beats him right now. Yeah, it was really smart, I think, for him to go train with with Trevor Whitman, a guy yeah. who can sharpen those specific skills and, and add some more tools to the toolbox there that have, at this point, really made Kamaru Usman a, an extremely well-rounded, extremely talented guy who is going to be a difficult puzzle for anyone in that division. I know coming up in round two, we're going to talk a little bit more about what we think is next for him, some of these comparisons floating around, uh, and what could be the future at 170. First, though, let's go ahead and do uh, Are You Fucking Kidding Me? Before we move on to round number two, I think we have a joint Are You Fucking Kidding Me? this week regarding Dana White's comments after Ariel Hawani's reaction to Gina Carano's social media post. Uh, as I said at the top of the show, at least one of which was blatantly anti-Semitic and one uh, another of which was just unbelievably tone deaf, basically comparing being conservative in America in 2021 to being Jewish during the Holocaust in Nazi Germany around World War II. Uh, that being the one that specifically seemed to get Gina Carano written out of uh, her role as Cara Dune. After being asked about it a lot on social media, Ariel finally posted about a nine-minute video in response uh, over the weekend, a video that I frankly considered to be incredibly restrained and incredibly thoughtful uh, in reaction to this situation, especially considering how close to this situation and how emotional you can imagine that it would be for him. Uh, And then Dana White made this response. He says, leave Gina alone. This during some manner of media event surrounding UFC 258. Listen, says White, we all make mistakes. We all make mistakes. For everybody to go in on her, I love how Ariel Helwani made it all about him. It was all about him. Such a douche. Uh, Are you fucking kidding me? I guess I would say, first of all, uh, it is about him. Would be my opening comment. Like, it is explicitly about him. And the fact that that you would take this kind of reaction to to him being well within his rights to say something about this specific in instance is incredibly are you fucking kidding me worthy uh, to me? It's weird to me that in this situation, Dana White is asked about Gina Carano, what's going on with her, and he chooses to make it about Ariel Hawani. By accusing yeah. him of making it by him. And you're right. Like what Ariel said about it. First of all, it was reasonable that he would have something to say because everybody's going to be asking him because in those early days coming up and doing like MMA rated and stuff like that uh, during the Elite XC era, uh, he did a bunch of interviews with Gina Carano. You know, she was generous with her time with him. That helped him out uh, early on in his reporting career. They kind of developed a sort of like a collegial friendship there as somebody like he interviews her a bunch. And then people are going to be asking him, like, hey, what do you think about your buddy Gina Carano posting, like, anti-Semitic stuff? Like, what do you as a Jewish man make of that? Like, he's going to have a response to that. And the response was very reasonable. And one thing I would like to say along with this, are you fucking kidding me, is to the assembled media who were there, uh, you you guys are allowed to to push back on some of this stuff. You know that? Like, you don't have to just sit there and offer up, the, hey, Dana, give us a, a soundbite on this thing. And then when he says some ridiculous stuff, like he goes after Ariel Hawani when you asked him about Gina Carano, you're, you're allowed to come back with a follow-up to that. You don't have to just, like, just jot it right down and, and take it to the click factory. 
You can you can have something to say about that in response, and you probably should. Yeah. Are you fucking kidding me, dude? The the other thing too is the whole leave Gina alone. Everybody makes mistakes. This is the same guy who fired Stitch Duran for criticizing the Reebok deal. Right. Right. And right. did it for the same reasons that Lucasfilm fired Gina Carano. Really, is because somebody said something, and you thought, wait, that has the potential to mess with the money. And we don't want anybody messing with the money. And therefore, we would rather fire you than give you the chance to be out here messing with the money. That's that's why Lucasfilm fired her. Because she was messing with the money. Making herself into somebody that people wouldn't want to watch on TV. And Dana White, he's fired people for saying stuff on social media before. As long as there are people he doesn't feel he needs. Or he feels that he can just go ahead and cast off. And now suddenly it's, uh, you know. Doesn't, doesn't want to see anybody face any actual consequences. It's leave Gina alone. Everybody right. makes mistakes. She doesn't seem to think it was a mistake because she keeps doing it. Yeah. Leave Gina alone as though it's a, a, a situation created by someone else. Yeah. Like we, <laughs> we were super mean and we've targeted Gina Carano. Not that she keeps coming out over and over again making these kind of statements. You fucking kidding me? That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Chad, after Kamaru Usman went out there, did some real champ shit in that fight with Gilbert Burns, came back from some adversity, finishes the fight in the third round. Take what from who, Chad? Not from Kamaru Usman, you're not taking that belt. Then he gets on the mic, and he has a call-out, it seems, ready. And that call-out is for Jorge Masvidal, who he already beat, and who has not fought since then. Has not fought anybody, has not gotten a win since then. And for some reason, it feels like Kamara Usman, the champ, the winner of that first meeting, is the one pushing for a rematch here. Now, I get that you look at the list of potential options for Kamara Usman next, and you're looking for somebody who's going to help you bring in some pay-per-view buys. Last time you did it with Jorge Masvidal, you did pretty well on pay-per-view by all indications. Also, worth pointing out, had a much stronger main card to help you pull in some pay-per-view buys. UFC 258 did not have that at all. But is this just Kamaru Usman looking for whoever can help put him in some kind of a money fight? And if so, is that kind of a weird situation for the champ to be in? In some ways, yes. Uh, Although it's a little bit different than what we see going on, for example, at Lightweight, where you've got this division full of Uh, top contenders, any one of whom might be able to emerge from the belt and where it seems like the competition over that title, which we currently, I guess, are going to leave on Habib Nurmagomedov, even though he's retired, uh, could be stiff and interesting and and fun to watch. In the welterweight division, Kamaru Usman has already defeated all of the top four ranked contenders uh, for that title. I guess the, you know, that, that being Gilbert Burns, Colby Covington, Leon Edwards, and Masvidal. Uh, in that order from one to four. And that leaves Wonder Boy Thompson, Michael Chiesa, uh, and then Tyron Woodley and Damian Maya, who I believe uh, Kamara Usman has also already defeated. Yep. So it's uh, it's not like there's any real pressing new business beating the door down right now for Kamara Usman. We, we, you know, uh, George St. Pierre has already publicly come out and said a, a very polite French Canadian, no, thank you, which I think we can <laughs> all, we can all agree is probably the right move. 
you know, we, we talked a lot last week and I would just reiterate this week about how if things, you know, if popularity and drawing power were based solely on ability, Kamar Usman would be the, maybe the top guy in the sport because he's just got it all right now, physically out there in the cage. Of course, we know popularity and drawing power is based on other stuff in this sport. Uh, and that feels like a shame that Kamaru Usman is, is not slightly better known or, or more of a draw in this sport. Uh, but, f- but from his point of view, I can totally understand how he would think a rematch with Jorge Masvidal would be the best thing on the game board for him right now. And just given the situation at welterweight, I would not have as strong a reaction to that rematch as I would to uh, Dustin Poirier and Conor McGregor, for example. Like, I don't see a ton of other stuff ready to pop off at welterweight. We need something to do with Kamara Usman. If it is another meeting with Masov at all, I guess so be it. Yeah, it, it does seem like Kamara Usman right now is sort of in a little bit of that mighty mouse zone where you're super skilled and super good, but also not the huge draw, like yeah. not the draw that your ability would seem to indicate that you ought to be. I, I was writing this week about how if we if we lived in a just and a fair world, the thing everybody would be bothering Khabib to do is not to come back and rematch Conor McGregor right. or something like that. It would be to go up and wait and fight Kamaru Usman. Yeah. That's a super fight yeah. right there. It's maybe the most interesting matchup in the sport right now, and there's just no goddamn way it ever happens. And there's just And there's no real push for it among the powers that be because yeah. it – would probably cost you some money to get them to do it, but then also it would not make a ton of money back. It wouldn't be that big blockbuster pay-per-view. And yet, skill for skill, like matchup-wise, stylistically and everything, it would be maybe the best fight you could make. And it would, like, not unreasonable. Khabib's a pretty big, lightweight and they the just seeing how those dudes would match up against each other. Khabib has been said like that. Hey, he the only thing he might be interested in is something that adds to the legacy. Going up fighting the welterweight champ would sure add to the legacy. And yet, doesn't there's just no interest, no movement at all to try to make something like that happen. And yet, if we were actually here in this sport doing the thing about trying to put together the best fights and find out who's the best fighter and stuff, that's the one we'd be pushing for. Yeah. And in absence of that, you know, you've got Kamzat Shemaev still suffering from fallout from his November COVID diagnosis. Which seems uh, really bad, by the way. You, yeah. you tweeted that, that story that was I, I saw it on Bloody Elbow where they was talking about like, his coaches and stuff giving a little more detail into what he'd been going through. That sounds like a nightmare, man. And yes. like really like it's been really, really bad, like a lot worse. I don't know why we were even talking about booking that guy right. fight when <laughs> if that's the stuff that he was going. They were talking about like how he'd go try to train a little bit, have to rest all constantly through training because he's just so fatigued. And then they were saying like like they were in a hotel or something and he went and rested in the lobby on the way back up to his room and fell asleep there in the lobby and then couldn't go back up to his room. Like, if that's the situation the guy was dealing with, you're crazy to even be thinking about. Like, oh, but in, in six weeks, you'll be ready to go, right? Yeah. That's insane, man. Especially for a guy that you've been trying to prop up as the new star or the new potential star. Uh, why would you even put him in that circumstance? Like, if that version of Kamzat Chemayev had somehow made it to the cage against Leon Edwards, he probably wasn't going to win. 
yeah. uh, which would have been too bad for uh, for his career and, and for his obvious potential in the sport. But at this point, it seems like he, he'll be out indefinitely, I think, is the only way we can really even consider that situation right now. you got to find something else to do with Leon Edwards, maybe Colby Covington. you got Stephen Thompson now kind of tossing his hat in the ring based on a two-fight win streak here. And like that would be a, a, like, a matchup for Kamaru Usman that I would watch but not one that I would expect the Wonder Man to win. So it's it's just a uh, it's a tough situation for Kamara Usman right now, to be honest with you. Like uh, I feel like he kind of has all of the tools uh, and is going to show up at the post-fight press conference dressed to the nines in a tuxedo, by the way. Like, he doesn't seem to me to be like an unpromotable entity. He seems to me to be a guy who could and, and should deserve better. And yet you look around the 170 pound division and I'm just not sure where the opportunities come from right now. Uh, if not Jorge Masvidal in a rematch that doesn't make much like narrative sense, but at the same time might be the best thing that you have just around at 170 pounds. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they're also talking about using those guys as, as coaches in a tough revival. So uh, maybe after we see them knock down some, particle board doors or something yeah kick some holes in some drywall and then we'll get excited about it you can see just from looking at my face right now how excited i would be about a season of the ultimate fighter yeah starring those guys in any case that's going to do it for round number two uh we will be right back with round number three Ben, this weekend's event from the Apex Arena in Las Vegas is going to feature a heavyweight contender fight between Derek Lewis and Curtis Blades. Blades rolls into this thing on the heels of a four-fight win streak. Derek Lewis, perennial fan favorite, comes in amid a three-fight win streak. So an actual, like, kind of interesting contender fight here in the heavyweight division between a couple of guys who've really been on a roll as of late. This one was originally scheduled to go down back in November, but was pushed back after Curtis Blades test positive for COVID-19. What do you expect to see here between these two heavyweights? Obviously, Curtis Blades, a guy uh, who has tremendous grappling skills to go along with the serviceable uh, stand-up game and Derek Lewis, a guy who we all know goes out there and, and hunts for the knockout every time out and yet also has this uncanny ability to just kind of get up off his back when fighting uh, even wrestlers and grapplers whose whose specific pedigrees are on paper far more accomplished than his own. So what what are you look what are you going to be looking for here in this one? Yeah, I mean, that is the question, too. I, I Remember when this fight was booked before and we got really close to it actually happening, I remember Sean Alshadi uh, interviewing Curtis Blades and him asking him directly about that. Like, look, we all know Derek Lewis does this thing. And I don't know how he keeps doing the thing, but are you prepared for how to stop the thing? And Curtis Blades clearly, he was like, yes, we have talked about this thing in training. My coaches and I, we're aware of this thing. We see what he's doing and we have a plan to stop him from being able to do it. Because really what you're... If you're Curtis Blades, you want to make this guy tired. You want to take him down. You want to wear him down on the mat. And you just don't want to stand there and give him that chance to throw those hammers at your head. And yet, if you can't 
finish him. We've seen that Derek Lewis can just kind of look barely motivated and semi-interested and still in the last minute of the last round throw a right hand at your head and end your whole night. And Curse Blades, I the thing I would be wondering is, do you go out there thinking about ways to finish this guy on the ground and get him out of there? Or, or do you go out there thinking, I'm going to wrestle my way to a decision over him? Because every round starts on the feet, and Derek Lewis has that sort of terrible patience, it seems, sometimes. like He's not just one of those guys who is dangerous in the first round of a fight or in the first two minutes of a fight. He can still have that pop late in a fight. Do you try to get rid of that guy early on like by just beating him up on the mat? getting him into a submission or something if you're if you're Curtis Blades. That's what I'd be curious about. Yeah, and obviously if you're Curtis Blades, I don't think you want to trade uh punches with Derek Lewis. Uh you're you're clearly going to be the most accomplished wrestler that Derek Lewis has fought at least since he took on Daniel Cormier for the heavyweight title a couple years ago. Obviously I'm armchair quarterback in this thing, but I would think if you're Curtis Blades, you want to try to get Derek Lewis onto the mat and and finish him there with either strikes or a submission. And don't really give him the opportunity to to rest, regroup, and then levitate himself back to his feet in that weird, <laughs> almost impossible fashion that uh, that Derek Lewis has the that ability to do. And look, man, if you're Curtis Blades, you're technically and officially the number two ranked contender in this division, according to the UFC's official rankings. Not that Curtis Blades comes up a ton these days in any discussion around the heavyweight title. Because we just finished the Stipe Miocic Daniel Cormier trilogy. Now we got Francis Ngannou, another uh, really interesting rematch here for the champion in Miocic. You got John Jones lurking in the wings, uh, waiting to to. Well, it sounded like more of a done deal when Dana White was talking about it yeah. leading up to UFC 258. Then you got John Jones coming out, sending sending out tweets as is his his fashion as is his practice uh he's sending out tweets that make it sound a lot less like a done deal sort of like i think his exact words were i hope i get to c- come back and fight in the ufc again someday someday I would, yeah, yeah. I, I would like to put on i think he said a few more good fights for the fans so that just tonally alone from what we can deduce from that john jones tweet it does not sound like he and the ufc have put pen to paper to to get this thing done to to like have him be slotted to to take on the winner of Miocic and, and Ngannou, but like you also got the biggie boy about to fight Cyril Gaon in a main event fight here in the next month or two. So if you're Curtis Blades, not only do you not want to give Derek Lewis the chance to really get in the zone here and, and maybe take you out on the feet or late in this fight, you just want to do something impressive to like keep your name in this mix, man, because there's a lot, there's suddenly a lot of kind of intrigue around the UFC heavyweight title. And for Curtis Blades to, to be among those guys that were considering for the next title challenger i would think he has to to in the words of dana white do something spectacular here this weekend at this event yeah and even then i mean you can do something spectacular and uh six weeks from now we'll kind of have forgotten it you know because it's just sort of the way that calendar is working and the way that that division is working at the time but you know still would be a whole lot better than going out there and getting knocked out if you had to choose, you know? <laughs> yeah, better better to win this fight than get knocked out, I think. Although, that, I'm looking at... Th- that's the scintillating analysis yeah, that the people come, come to the co-main event podcast for. It's better to win this fight than to get horribly knocked out by Derek yeah. Lewis. See, that's the benefit of my years of jiu-jitsu experience. There you go, so right that's there. That's why I'm, I'm bringing that's to the table were, here. That's why you were able to come up with that. 
the odds on this one, Curtis Blades right now about a four to one favorite. Yeah, you know, pretty reasonable. Derek Lewis, I see you can get him as high as plus three thirty six. Uh, I'm looking at bestfightodds.com here. If you had twenty bucks, you never wanted to see again, Chad. Do you feel confident enough in Derek Lewis's ability to do that Derek Lewis thing to Curtis Blades? I mean, you, you know, I love to take a flyer on a on an underdog. Uh, Derek Lewis could win this fight, man. Derek Lewis can win any fight. Anytime you got a guy who hits as hard as as Derek Lewis in this division, he could win this fight. Though I don't necessarily think those those odds are too far from from accurate. He's the biggest underdog on the card. Mm. Always good from your main event slot. Yeah. Yeah. That's unusual. That's unusual. You and I were taking a gander at this card before we started recording this 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 round. You got a lot of uh it feels like there's a lot of old friends on this card that we haven't <laughs> heard of in a while. You got Andre Arlovsky on this thing, you got Eddie Wineland on this thing, you got Chaz Skelly on here. Just like it seems like a uh you know, a, a group of fighters that uh that are coming back for some manner of reunion or something. Yeah, I also notice that we're doing a sort of preemptive, protective thing here where last time we tried to book these guys, fight fell apart at the last minute. This time, including the main event, you have four fights in the heavyweight division on this fight card, which that is also unusual. You usually don't see that many heavyweight fights on one fight card. We're putting enough guys on there. You got Andre Olovsky and Tom Aspinall. You got uh, Alexei Olenek and Chris Dachaus. And uh, something happens to the main event. One of those guys is getting a call. Yeah. Yeah. And we can all just hope it's Alexei Olenek. Can we not? <laughs> yes. Yes, we can. All right. Let's do just saying stuff. And then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, I know that you probably saw Julian Marquez. Okay, so this is where I was going to go, too. It doesn't surprise me that we're, we're both of a similar mind here for just saying stuff. Shows up after a long drought, a long time spent away from the octagon. Gets himself a hard-fought victory over the weekend against Maki Patolo. Third round anaconda choke victory over the coconut bombs. And then... Um, I, I don't know. How, how would you term what Julian Marquez, the message that he sent to, to Miley Cyrus in the aftermath of this thing? Uh, it's like some teen going viral trying to ask out Brad Pitt to prom or something. Yeah, a borderline sweet, right? Mm -hmm. Miley Cyrus seems surprisingly into it. Frankly, she says, shave the MC in your chest hair and you got a deal pretty much. And here's where and that's MMA. Not so bad. That's pretty is, easy. You can yeah. you can shave the M MC in there. And even if she doesn't come through with a date or anything, and it and it all it's all for nothing, then you just shave the chest hair and start over again, and it's fine. And I guess I'm just saying this week. Here is where MMA rears its head. <laughs> because we often say we this is why we can't have nice things in this sport. People don't know when to say when. You don't know when to take a golden opportunity and just accept it. Julian Marquez comes back the very next day and he's, he's gunning for a henna tattoo. He actually has a Photoshop of the thing here done up says, uh, if you get a henna tattoo that says Cuban missile crisis above your belly button, like Tupac, I'm in hashtag thug life smirk emoji. <laughs> and this is where things kind of go off the rails yeah. for our guy. 
the you 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 took a swing way out of your weight class here. Yeah. Yeah. And it was looking like it was going to work. And then you want to come back with like a counter proposal after that? Oh man. Come on. You had it. You yeah. know? You had it right there and then you screwed it up. Part of my just sense of here as pointed out here on Twitter by one of my uh, must follows in the MMA Twitter sphere, uh, Jessica Napic. I'm sure I'm nailing the name, uh, at Jessica Napic. And she points out, I think the worst part is I'm 100% sure she has no idea what his fighter nickname is. So this sounds even more insane. Like, that's true. Miley Cyrus does not know. She never heard of Julian Marquez before this and, and people brought it to her attention. And if you don't know that his nickname is the Cuban Missile Crisis, you're going, why the hell would this person ask me to get a henna tattoo of the historical event Cuban Missile Crisis in order to go on a date with him? That is the craziest shit I have ever heard. Yeah. And that's at that point you're glad that you didn't, you know, accidentally give into a date with this person. <laughs> you're yeah. You're just like, get Cuban Missile Crisis tattooed on your body. What? Why? Even a henna tattoo? Like, what? Why would I want the Cuban Missile Crisis? It was, it was a very tense few days <laughs> in world history before any of us were born yeah. involved in this thing. It's it's just a wild, wild request. Yeah. Oh. If you're if you're Julian Marquez, the only reply you need to make here is a photo of you with the initials shaved in your chest hair. Yeah. And, That's just, all and the words "send me location." That's it. That's all you need to do here. Yeah. Take take her out to Olive Garden and uh, sure, good time. Be a gentleman. Unlimited breadsticks out there at the Olive Garden. Any case, that's going to do it for the co-main event podcast this week. Uh, Thanks, everybody, for listening. We will be back at the Patreon page all week long. Don't forget, even if you're not a member, you can roll over there right now and listen to last Friday's Power Hour with an expanded conversation about Gina Carano as well as a bunch of other powerful topics from last week. Uh, We'll be back on Wednesday for the live chat. We got a movie club about the movie Primer on Thursday, carrying on with uh, time travel movie month this week, this month. It's been a lot of fun. And uh, then Friday, once again, we'll be back with another power hour. So check us out over there if you want to. Patreon.com slash co-main event. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. Am I correct in assuming that you haven't watched Primer yet? I have not, but I... uh, I've made my plans to do so. I've made my preparations, let's just say. If there's an option to watch it with subtitles, even though it's in English, I I think you should take that option. Yeah, I'm definitely going to check that out. Uh, It looks like I can get it on Amazon Prime for a reasonable reasonable price. And uh, I did watch the trailer, and I noticed not a lot of uh, dialogue in the trailer. Almost as though that shit from me. <laughs> I'm prepared for you to show up annoyed at this one, but you know what? That's fine. I'm prepared to love it. I'm coming into this thing with an open mind, man. $7,000 time travel movie uh, from the guy who told Ryan Johnson that Looper didn't make no damn sense. I'm all for it. I'm all for it, man. I'm all for it.